1: Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast is brought to you by well you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com/laststandmedia <laughs> Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother Dagan, Tully Moriarty Dagan. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? I collect spores,
2: mold, and fungus. Yes. of I really course. Do,
1: actually. Egon, my favorite character. Oh, movie, I think we'll have to talk about that, but we won't get to that yet. Not yet. That's that's too quick. Don't rush it. Don't rush it. Well, welcome one. Welcome all to knock back our weekly retro and nostalgia podcast. We do right here on Patreon at patreon.com slash last media, where you can get early ad free access to every episode of this show. The ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to our nostalgia programming, as well as being able to pick, choose, vote on other topic ideas. So welcome. Thank welcome. you for all of that. Uh, digging, as we always like to begin our show with just a, you know, getting a little warmed up, you know, vamp a little bit, as Absolutely. they say in the uh, <laughs> in the industry. Break. How is your ice. life going? How's how's everything going with you?
2: Good. Good, man. You know what I was thinking about? I think you were in the email chain. I think I told you I haven't really talked to you since last week, but I got a new job.
1: Yeah, I saw that in the email. Congratulations.
2: Thank yes. you very much. Very excited about that. But the reason I bring it up, and you know me a little bit, Kyle, like with the show, I don't know. I'm a little torn about bringing up too many personal life related things on the show. I I honestly really? think the more I do sure. it, the more yeah. our listeners do kind of find that stuff interesting and fascinating. I think they like us a little bit, right? They want to know what's going on in our lives. Yeah, this I, is not, I think that's that's safe to say. you got to pull back the curtain and that's okay. I th- I just think it's more of a humility thing with me, but I wanted to speak to this for our listeners, a lot of you guys and girls out there, because you guys have been so good in reaching out to me, and I think feel, maybe a little bit feeling bad for me with the job situation, and I wanted to clear the air about a couple of things too, because I think I've elicited a little too much sympathy from you guys, so... To make a long story short with my career, most of you guys will know that I'm an animator professionally. I've been doing that for a long time. I work in TV animation mostly, and I spent the better part of the last decade at Sesame Workshop doing animation for Sesame Street. We kind of became, my little team kind of became the core in-house animation team at Sesame, which is a really cool thing. But I decided in the springtime, I guess it was early in the spring of 2021, I was going to leave, I got an offer to direct a pilot for a different network, an animated show pilot for a different network, which is something that I always wanted to do. And I said I always would do it if it was a pilot of my own creation, a show of my own creation, or something that kind of spoke to me that I could see myself, you know, kind of heading up. And the show was not created by me, but it was something that I thought was really cute and really smart, and I loved the art direction. So, I left a long term position at Sesame for a three month gig. I think that's something that a lot of you guys didn't realize. Like, it wasn't, I didn't leave for a long term position somewhere else. I left for a three month commitment. Now, sometimes when you do that in any job, but I could speak to animation, you kind of just think to yourself in an optimistic way okay, this is going to be a three month gig initially, but I'm sure it'll lead to other things. If the series doesn't get picked up right away or if there's some sort of period where we're waiting to hear, I'll just work on something else at the studio, blah, blah, blah. So I kind of had high hopes that it would become a long-term-ish thing, hopefully. But there was no commitment on either end that that was going to be the case. So I left being at Sesame for years for a three-month opportunity. And after three months, it ended. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of asked for it. And I think that's what a lot of you guys didn't realize in my DMs and the messages you guys send by the dozens just in reaching out in a concerned way which i appreciate and love you guys so much for but yeah that was the thing that was my kind of risk that was my undertaking and it didn't pan out into other things we did the pilot i think we'll know whether it's going to go to series sometime next year there's no rush on the network's end which is many times that's the case they got a lot of they got a lot of fires in the they got a lot of um what do you say? Pokers in irons the fire? Irons in the fire. Yeah, irons, irons in, the fire. in the fire. Irons, yeah. So there's no real rush, so we'll hear eventually. But in the meantime, I was able to go and work for another studio, which was kind of like a, like like kind of my West Coast Sesame, like my West Coast family. They gave me three months of work. I got to animate on some stuff. So I've been waiting for a, for a gig, for a promising gig, and I got one. Uh, I start next week. It's a children's network, a major children's network. I'll give you three guesses. <laughs> and uh if you guess three times you're gonna get what you're gonna get it right. It and, rhymes uh, I'm with I'm really excited. As a character designer, I'm really it excited. It
1: rhymes with a podium.
2: With... <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Yes, it is Disney. Loran
1: Loran <laughs> That's an old joke in our family. We play this game called Celebrity and it's just you just put names in a hat, band names, character names, whoever, and then you split into two teams and one person on one team, you know, takes the pieces of paper out and tries to describe who the who the person, the band, the <laughs> character, whatever it is. And the other person guesses. So my one of them was Duran Duran and my dad was going and he was like rhymes with, which is totally not allowed, by the way, in the game. But he was like rhymes with Loran Loran. And he was dead serious. Yeah. Oh, he was dead serious. Also, he once put in all that is gold does not glimmer or something like that, which is, you know, the Lord of the Rings quote. A quote. And we were like, Dad, that's what? That's not and a game. And he's character. like, who says this? And I'm like, but that's not the game. <laughs> he was just getting it so wrong.
2: That must have been like his maiden voyage. Yeah. And Carlos Nikki,
1: of course, is another Carlos joke. like Nicky. funny Because like some musician my dad loves. Famous who I still flautist. don't. I don't still have no idea huh, where my dad found that. this guy. My our dad went into like a real. I think it's safe to say our dad from 1992 until the early 2000s was in a complete new age phase. Oh,
2: my God. It started with the Ankh tattoo, probably. Yeah, right? he has an
1: Ankh-like cross tattoo on his chest. I was telling <laughs> Mike about that because he came and visited recently and had his cross hanging out of his... You know, he, our dad's very Catholic. And I was like, oh, man, you should see his tattoo on his chest. Yeah, you know, like... I'm sure it he out. will one day, but... Yeah, yeah, he, and then he was just... Got, he just kind of went off the... You know, he didn't go off the deep end. I think he was... He had a midlife crisis. That's I what think. happens. Like, yeah. 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 He didn't do the Porsche... And the golf thing, he
2: did the Ankh tattoo, uh, Tai Chi was a big thing with him. At tai t- I don't know if he still does that. I was just talking about a friend of mine who does Aikido for 20 years. And I was like, yeah, my dad was really into Tai Chi and Chi Kung for a long time. But not, I was, then I got to thinking, like, is he still doing that? I don't think so.
1: I don't think so. No, because when he was here, I was talking to him like, our dad, after 9-11... You know, our dad was there, obviously he was really paranoid. I mean, our dad has to go in every six months for like a full workup. Still yeah. For the rest of his yeah, life yeah, yeah. on the government's dime, of course. But he was really paranoid afterwards. And so he used to take like this. I used to call it his AIDS cocktail. He used to get mad at me because I was like, because <laughs> uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about it was like his. He had a shelf that he built in our kitchen <laughs> that like a spice rack, but it was just vitamins, vitamins. So instead of spices, it was just vitamins, literally 50, 60, 70 types. And he would literally take these things by the handful. <laughs> And I was telling him he doesn't do that anymore, but I was telling him we did gleam a few interesting things out of that experience. Oh, yeah. Echinacea was one of those things that stuck around. That's a good one. Echinacea is really good. Vitamin C, of course, is good. Vitamin E, uh, all the rest. So, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. But dad, we had to take a swipe at you. It's only been (laughs) we
2: had we had to do it, Dad.
1: seven minutes into the show. All right. Oh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm just, you know what I'm realizing recently? First of all, how cool is my, my Cobra oh, well, Air Force shirt? Oh, I was going to start
2: with that. That's a brilliant shirt.
1: So Cobra Air Force shirt may be the only one in existence. I've been meaning to show you, Dagan. Yeah. There is a, uh, a cosplay group called The Finest. I think I might have like tweeted at them at you a few times. Okay. They're a G.I. Joe cosplay group. Dude, this shit is nuts. I mean, like, I, I, I'm, I can't even believe it. You know how my dream has always been to get a biker scout outfit? I'm still going to do that. But these guys make cut co- because you can't just go buy a Cobra outfit, uh, you know, from some store, you have to have it custom built for you or yes. custom make it yourself. But there are people that do them. Right. And I'm like, man, there are probably five or six outfits. First of all, they take these montage pictures where I'm like, this is insane. I mean, characters like chuckles and big boa and like random characters. It's That's awesome. Dr. True. Mindbender. And, uh, I was telling Mike, uh, now this character is after your time. Cause he came out in 1989. I think in the comics and the toy came out in 1990, but I really want to be the character metalhead. Who oh, is, uh, that'd be cool because he has, he has like so he's a bad guy and he has like goggles like goggles on but he's an idiot like so he is always blowing shit up he has like he basically has rocket launchers all over his body oh, and, the cat, the, awesome. the, and the toy was awesome like the rocket launchers on his arms on his back on his legs and he had like a gun or whatever but he always like would blow up the wrong thing because to, to shoot the missiles he'd have to say bang you know and so he would always like say it and then get pushed and then that like that's you know it was awesome it was awesome he like
0: bang bang
1: and just and I love that character and I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to have I'm not going to do it because I have no artistic skill, but I, I have some autistic skill, but I don't have any artistic yeah, skill, definitely do have but uh, I want to like hire one of these people and be like, I want a metalhead fucking outfit, dude, like and I'll see you guys at Dragon Con or something like that. So some, that something. would be
2: huge. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going. If you're doing that, I'm going to go. I'm not going to. Yeah, you got that, but I'm going to. How go. about
1: Tomax? We, I was thinking you and I could be like Tomax and Zaymot, oh, but that would where, be fun. you know, like but from the comics where they wear suits. And yes. they have like the, you know, and they have like just the cobra crest yes. on their suits and stuff. That, like, that would, would be kind of cool. cool. Yeah.
2: That would be cool with the suits. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Anyway. You got to do it, man. I'm holding me to uh, this. Halloween's coming up. You could have done. You could have done a trial run.
1: All I'm concerned about now that I live in the suburbs is getting the hell out of here on Halloween. How can I leave my, you know, because I leave a, a copious amount of candy out, but I'm like, I don't know. None you do understand
2: so. 2 14-year-old kids are going to come and take it all at one time, right? Well,
1: I have a camera. So last year I did this. Remember, I don't know if we might have had this conversation last year, but I did this last year. Yeah. And then I had like a the camera set up or whatever. I have like, you know, the security system here and I put out like a thing of cuz we didn't really know anything about COVID still at that time. So I put out a thing about of hand sanitizer and then the candy right. and then the bowl. And and I think Uncle Mike was like, "Well, they're going to take everything." And I'm yeah. like, "Well, we'll see." But what ended up happening was they left the bowl. The candy was gone. And they took the hand sanitizing. <laughs> that's a mi- so.
2: Well, we, we, they needed it. Yeah, yeah. People do need it right now more than ever.
1: Sure. So, I mean, if people want to do that, that's on them. But I'm going to put out like a little because we usually go to Dana's or that's what their tradition is here is go to Dana's for Halloween. Yeah. So I'm going to do that because I just don't want I the trick or treating thing is very uncomfortable for me. Like I'm just, like,
2: just do it.
1: No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'll leave the bowl of candy out with a little sign like I did last year, you know, happy Halloween, be safe, take what you need, you know, and I was thinking about even going crazier with it and because this is something people would steal. But, you know, maybe, maybe we try it. Yeah. It's just get like a bunch of like real candy bars and just kind of like make a little brick wall of them on my stand and just be like, you know, take, you know, you're going to be the cool
2: house that hands out the full size candy
1: bars, but you're not going to be there to reap the glory. I feel like that's even more baller, though.
2: Yeah, that is kind of more. I, I agree. It's a, there's a
1: mystique. Yeah. You make eye co- Who You know is the this kids You know, the kids are playing hopscotch in the street. A few days later, you make eye contact with them briefly. They know you know. You know?
2: <laughs> Look of awe in their eyes. Right. <laughs> and gratefulness. Dude, that's a, I, I'm also thinking maybe the camera, especially if you're not going to be there, the camera as deterrent. Like, have the big, it doesn't even have to be hooked up. Just the giant camera, but
1: like a <laughs> foot away from the yeah <laughs>
2: Like, would that work or would they steal a camera? I
1: don't, yeah, they probably still, yeah, get like an old 1980 CR, you know, like a <laughs> huge Sony installation there that would be hooked up Lights. to like a small monitor. Yeah, we would re- be
0: ridiculous. All right. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: Well, that's coming up. And I mean, good since it is, we're recording this in October. Obviously, knockback is good anytime, any place. But because of Halloween, we're doing today the movie Ghostbusters, 1984 yeah. film. What? Now, I'm excited to talk to you about this movie because I've got a problem with this movie.
2: Oh, I can't wait to get into this. And I...
1: I I think my instinct about this movie was reaffirmed upon watching it again. Okay. I haven't seen this movie. I was telling Micah, it's possible that I never seen this movie all the way through. The reason is, is because it was always on TV. So you just see it. Yes. Constantly. Yes. Right. So you see like this and you see this and you see this. And I'm like, I don't know, man. From 1988 to 1994. I mean, I probably saw most of everything that was on HBO or Showtime or something at that point. But who the fuck knew? I mean, we did not know. We were just tuning in. <laughs> Good. Point. Right. And Good that was point. before even as we said before, before even overlays on TV, like when you turn on a channel, you had no idea what you were even watching. So like you would that was the old game is like, how long could it take you to figure out what the hell with this was, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes. And so then so, so those that's a, that's an auspicious time for sure. But upon watching it front to back as an adult. I feel like this movie is really funny and really well acted. I think there's a lot of great performances in it, and I think Rick Moranis is actually particularly awesome in this it's movie, so good. but I feel like the and this might be be because of my television watching sensibilities. This movie moves really quick, unnecessarily fast. It doesn't let anything marinate enough for you to care. And so it really embraces its comedic roots, which is awesome. Yes, But the reality is, is that there's so much more potential under this than that. And they kind of squandered it. And I, I understand that this movie is beloved. And this is one of the beloved 80s properties. But like I said, my I my feeling has been confirmed. I don't understand why that is. There are many, many, many 80s movies better than this. And I I, you can rattle them off. And that don't get as much love as this. And I know that the sequel, which I don't remember at all. I, I think I went and saw it when I was a little kid. Because I think it came out in 1989 or 1990. Yeah. But I don't even I don't even remember that. And I just feel like this has been kind of hanging on based on like this this uh, this one off film that for some reason has this fan base that I can't relate to and. Dylan Paulson actually wrote into us on Patreon and said, hi, guys, a long time. First time, I'll keep this short. OK, is Ghostbusters a lightning in a bottle type 80s comedy that can never be recreated? Or is there enough lore and heart in this first movie to be the start of a great franchise? See, the ironic thing about that is that I think they ignored everything in the movie that could have made it a franchise. And so it becomes much more of like a slapstick one off comedy. But you turn. I don't know. I'm going on and on. I'm really curious what you think of 1984's Ghostbusters. I
2: love where you're starting with this, man. I think this is going to be such a good conversation. I think it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, now, know this for our listeners. This film has been on the list for knockback from the beginning. We were just waiting for the opportune time to do it. Um, I think I felt like it was cleverly slid in. It'll be just in time for everybody for Halloween this year, so that's kind of fun. And fortunately, also, it kind of dovetails with the third sequel finally coming out ghostbusters afterlife which is coming out around thanksgiving so time fortunately timely it wasn't really intended that way but that was a opportune um coincidence that i thought was fun and then i love hearing your story with this because you were as of yet unborn hanging around little gingerbread colin in mom's belly still when this right. came out in the summer of 84 you wouldn't come out for another few few months and i had yet to premiere you had yet to make your debut Right. Which is very interesting. And for my story, Kyle, which I think you know, is I've only seen this movie once during its initial theatrical run in 1984. It's the only time I've ever seen this movie. There's only one iconic piece of pop culture filmic material that has that same thing for me. And we're going to talk about that at Christmas time. So we're not going to talk about that yet. Okay. So I was really. A lot of this conversation for me, having only seen it one time, is, and knowing, of course, the pop culture slash nerd culture phenomenon this movie is and was. And the, the franchise, now, no, this is about the 1984 film. It's not about Ghostbusters 2. It's not about the 2016 reboot, Melissa McCarthy reboot. It's not about Afterlife, obviously, or any of the video games or any of the other subsequent Yeah, the cartoons, the real Ghostbusters. The real Ghostbusters cartoon, which I'll bring up later a little bit, but we won't talk about that too much in depth. It's great. One of the great animated series of the
1: 80s. Yeah, I used to actually like that cartoon when I was... So uh, good, dude. I used to watch it. I think it was on after G.I. Joe.
2: I think you're right. Weirdly, it came a couple of years after. I think it debuted in 86, the animated series. Yep. But... I really wanted to see a lot of this for me was going in and seeing what all the fuss is about. Not in a pessimistic way. Not in a, in a curmudgeonly way. I wanted to see, like, let me see what has its its talents, its hooks in everybody over all these years. And knowing, like, really remembering nineteen eighty four and probably post Star Wars, you know, Star Wars Empire, Return of the Jedi. The This was like a pop culture phenomenon that maybe even exceeded Star Wars, and I say that that because I remember in 84, 85, mid-80s, moms and dads were rocking the t-shirts. It wasn't just kids and neckbeards, you know what I mean? It was like Mm. for everybody. It was the song, the Top 40 soundtrack, especially the theme song, which went to number one on Billboard. The shirts, the products, the lunch boxes, the toys, the action figures, the toy proton packs. Like, I went, I remember going to carnivals in 1984, 1985, you know, the little town school carnivals face painting. You wanted the Ghostbuster sign painted on your face. That image, you know, the universal no sign with the ghost through it mm. was one of the most popular images of my youth. I mean, it was everywhere. And Ghostbusters was literally everywhere. It took Star Wars a step further for me, as far as pop culture largeness, or largesse because it just was literally on the tips of everybody's tongues. It seemed to transcend generations, so I couldn't really wait to get into it. And the other thing that occurred to me, Kyle, was like, this is a really unique movie because I, I went in really analytical to enjoy it. It's only an at what a buck forty-five. Very yeah, enjoyable, it's very like you said, very yeah. quick almost flop sweat quick like they wanted to get in and out there's so much to say about it but to me what i had occurred to me when i was watching was like wow this kind of blends this film very uniquely blends comedy sci-fi and horror which were all very big genres in the mid 80s and i can't wait to get into it with you a big part of the conversation that i was excited about to sort of cross into with you was like how you you know your initial experience with it and how you've experienced it since. But also, like, the question on... The, the largest question on my mind is still, even after watching it a couple of more times, getting really into it, is were they intending this movie to be as big as it got? Or did it get so big in spite of itself? In other words, it has, it's, you know, the comedy, the writing, very bankable stars coming out of film and SNL and everything the genres, the effects, the budget. It had everything going for it, but I feel like it got even bigger than anybody could have possibly ever anticipated. Mm. And I think, for me, that's a very interesting part of the conversation. Like, even going in now, it's like, I really enjoyed it. I I think it's a really enjoyable film. I think it's a very quick watch. I think Bill Murray's magnetic in this film I think it's very unique, again, in blending all those genres, but I'm not sure what the alchemy is that made it this big. Like, Why are nerd collect? Why is Playmobil still making Ghostbusters sets? I have no why idea. I mean, is that's the thing. Lego, merchandise, products, people dressing up with the proton packs 35, 40 years. Later. You know what I mean? Like, what is What is at the root of this thing? What is at the core of this thing that makes it as large as it is and you could, mm. you know relegate it to the one movie i mean of course it had its sequel and that's probably a big part of the conversation too but besides those initial t- two films what do we got here like what is at its base what is at the at the core of the meat that makes this thing like transcend time basically it's so crazy
1: yeah because someone had written in i didn't end up using their inquiry i was just looking um but they had said like They feel about this the way I felt about Back to the Future, which is a similar thing to the way I feel about this. I actually, in some ways, consider them exactly the same in that regard, where it's like, what? I mean, this is good stuff, but I don't know about what what the gravitational pull of this universe is, because I think all of the potential in the film. First of all, the film is incredibly well written. I mean, I I would never deny that at all, that really witty dialogue really funny characters and acting all of the pieces are there and I think one of the interesting things is not being a fan of Ghostbusters I think I've kind of been if anything I was kind of going into watching this movie a little higher than I probably should have been because a good example would be I'm a huge fan of red letter media which I think you are too and good especially shit. the Plinket reviews which are just hysterical and <laughs> so witty and funny I wish that that that's all they did. I understand why they don't, because it's really hard to do. But I watched the Ghostbusters 2016 one and I have never seen that movie, the female one. And in that in that production that they do, they talk a lot about the original Ghostbusters and how it's really, really good. And it does this, this and this and this really well. And so I was like, okay, like, we'll see. And I I guess maybe I'm missing something. But I went in and while understanding the finer points of what they were saying, I just I don't think the movie. In fact, I was kind of bored by the end. You know, I was like, with why is ideas. this? Mo- I was, I was, with, with no, no, with the, with the, the movie itself. Yeah, Because yeah. yeah. I was like, why, why can't you just slow down for a minute? And I think that it was the pacing of the movie that really got me. Because you know they're at college and they're a university, and I really like the scene with the cards and the the, the attractive female student and he's shocking the dude oh, and it's all that. Great, it's, it's good stuff. Tale. But so, like, you're kind of getting the vibe of everything, everyone, but you don't, you only get the vibe really of Bill Murray's character, right? You don't of Venkman, right? That's Venkman, right? And then, so, yep. with, with Stance and with uh, Spengler and Zettermore later on, you never really get to know them. No. Right? Like, nope. we know that Spengler's kind of the wide eyed one. We know that, you know, that I, I guess. Egon would be kind of the Donatello I was kind of thinking of like yeah. it's, it's we get that but why can't we get to know them a little bit more and I like I found the whole thing with Ernie Hudson's character peculiar because I didn't remember that really where where they find him later and, yeah. and you don't really even in fact it's so ridiculous because he comes in and they're like yeah you're hired it's almost like a joke in the script to just get him in but it's like why wasn't he just part of your crew to begin with it's then? strange like I, I didn't really understand that I, I thought that um you know, Annie Potts is Janine. Great character. Really fun character. We get to know a little bit about her. She's like really she considers herself very smart and stoic and all those kinds of things. Like spend a little bit more time with her. Yes. And then we meet like these random, you know, like William Atherton's character Peck, the EPA agent. Like we, he comes out of nowhere. That's very right. Strange. Then I can't wait it's to just I don't really. Guy. So I, I had a hard time really staying with it because By the by the end, I was just like, I just want this to be over. You know, I I don't I don't it's not that it's bad by any stretch of the imagination. I just think there's so much potential for this to have been so much smaller. And maybe that was maybe that was the thing that bothered me, Digging was why did the movie need to move so quickly and then be so big? If a movie is going to move quickly, it could still be small. It would have been much cooler if they just remained a ragtag group that no one believed the entire time. Right. And then maybe they have some sort of revelatory thing. But the thing they have is like they're this huge thing in the city at the end and blah, blah, blah. And the peck lets the spirits out and all that. It becomes this really huge movie. And I think that also, in my opinion, injures it. It's almost like, how do we get the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man? We have an idea for the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. How do we get that to, to occur in the movie? Right. And yeah,
2: absolutely. No, so you make a lot of good. Points. I feel like I'm
1: beating the shit out of it. But I think it's just because the people involved in it are such high caliber people. Yeah. That I think maybe that's why they get a little bit of I don't want to say a pass, but why people are like, yeah, how can you not help but love something that these SNL cats are in? Ivan Reitman's in there. I mean, Ivan Reitman did meatballs and stripes and he has, you know, connections to National Lampoons and Alpha House and all these things. Right. Like, it's good. These guys know comedy. Yeah. I don't think anyone's going to look at Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd and be like, these guys don't know fucking shit.
2: Yeah, oh, absolutely. Comedy so is absolutely. You
1: know, but right. at the same time, I think people would also look at me and say like, "Well, you don't know what the hell you're talking about." And I, I think that that is true. <laughs> the movie I was a little surprised. You know how on Amazon it shows you the IMDb score. Yeah. Like the critic score, and it's got a seven point eight, which is lower than I thought it would be. As an example, Battlestar Galactica, which we were doing kind of concurrent to this, is a nine point five on there. Is it so, really? Yeah. So. Wow.
2: Holy cow. As a series, not season as a series. Yeah, the series as a whole collective series.
1: Right. Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where I stand on that. How does that how does that strike you? The 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 rapidity and just it's kind of like a a, it's like a car going down the road, just grabbing people as it's going. But we're like, who the fuck (laughs) is this guy? Where did this guy come from? Who who's this academic throwing you out? Who is, you know, where did what happened to the librarian? What what? Yeah, it flies. Just a lot. It's it a fl- lot.
2: It is. Yeah. No, you're right. You make a lot of great points. I think it's good for a feature film to be snappy. It's good for a feature film to not overstay its welcome. But I think one thing this movie has going for it is I think its best look is channeling like a 1984 movie theater sort of um, nostalgia. You got your popcorn, you got your raisinettes. you got your Cherry Coke, your... It's a blockbuster. It's a big picture film. You want to see it on the large screen. And I think at its core, it's a feel-good movie, right? It's, a, it's, a very, it's an uplifting movie. It's a lot of fun to watch. It's quick. But I think what you said that strikes a chord in particular is that there is so much strong stuff at its core, at its foundation, and that's very unique. And I think you want to learn more about the characters. You want to learn more about the tech. How did these guys get together? What's the genesis of, you know, all all of these things? What, and fleshing them out more, you know, where Bill Murray's character really is the only one with an inherent personality. And I almost feel like the characters, the main four in particular, like you almost do have that Ninja Turtle dynamic where it's like, oh, you got these four guys, four heroes, four protagonists, pick your favorite. But The other three characters are much more watered down and diluted. We don't get a lot. You got to kind of read into it, read into each one of those other three characters just to get a little more substance. Where he is the only, you know, Bill Murray really steals the show. And it occurs to me a few times, especially with the Dan Aykroyd character, it's like he's almost purposely seating the stage to let Murray shine or let Murray take center stage. You know what I mean? It was almost like the movie served largely as a Bill Murray comic book vehicle you know what i mean where it's like the other characters even kind of fade to the background a little bit to let him come forward a little more which is kind of which is kind of odd i do get that resonance from the movie it's like i think a lot of it is having to read into it and a lot of those things those very things that you talked about are the reasons why we're questioning why this is such a pop culture mainstay how did it survive so long and maintain the top of the dog pile as far as like Merchandise, products, cosplay, conventions, on the tips of people's tongues with wanting more. Like, it's very, it's a very interesting conversation. It doesn't really bother me because I think the movie just, the movie, it's very, I, I think bringing Back to the Future into the conversation was very smart on your part. You know, it does make you feel like that. I think Back to the Future is a little stronger. There's less characters to juggle. So the characters are more fleshed out in Back to the Future
1: right and even then we don't have any idea like why are these two friends no like right it's unexplained why what the hell is going on here and that so because for me Dave, it's like with ghostbusters yeah they they reach the pinnacle of the story in my opinion when they go to the library no the library intro is really cool and then they go to the library to investigate now that should have been the whole movie is like what's going on at the new york city public library and we're going to figure out what's going on in this place and it's haunted and Or at the the Sedgwick, like the the hotel is really cool setting, too. Yeah, I like the hotelier. Like, I think he's an interesting and funny character. They plays that very uptight 80s guy very well. But I want to ask you, And by the way, before I forget, I should also say, because you brought up the iconography many times. No one would deny that that icon is awesome. I mean, I, I look at it sometimes and actually do laugh because it's like the ghost face is so funny. Like, he's, like, being caught, you know, like, in a spotlight. It's, it's
2: clear. Yeah. It, and is, I think
1: it is awesome. That probably, I mean, obviously, the
2: universal no sign was a big thing with no smoking and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But I think the universal no sign was, like, put on the map as a cultural thing, as a direct result of Ghostbusters. Like, no whatever was in that circle became, like, a big thing. Like, this was the... I mean, I can't... You can't even overstate the acting, the lo- the logos... The genre defining, you know, the fact that it was a triumphant of genre defining perf- uh, performances and just storytelling, but also like, you know, like just for quotes, you know, this movie is one of the most quotable films of probably the last fifty years. You know, which again, is a big part of the conversation. It's like, how did this, how did this happen? I can't wait to dig down and see if we could, if we could come up with any answers. You know, it's it's an, it's such an interesting conversation. It really. I Again, I really enjoyed it. I loved seeing it a couple of more times. I get why it's popular because I think it just has that happy, optimistic, you know, no pressure. It's just like something that's, that's fun. And I think maybe you would argue you need that now more than ever in 2021. But, mm. you know, just digging down from a nineteen eighty a mid-80s perspective is interesting. And also a, a really kind of a love letter to mid-80s New York. Which was also a cool thing for me, and maybe it makes me a little more biased towards the film too.
1: Certainly, and I, I think New York could have even been more of a character in some ways mm. as well. Like, I don't think they even brought that to bear as much as they could have either. One of the interesting things that I I wanted to ask you about was your first time seeing it through this lens. Timothy Martin wrote in and said, "Hi guys, great topic." As a kid in the '80s, I was convinced this was a horror movie. As an adult, I realize this is comedy gold. Has time and maturity changed your outlook on the film or did you always get what Reitman was going for? So I'm, I'm curious if you recall your feelings on the film at that time. Um, it must have not been very strong for you not to have returned in an era where you're playing with G.I. Joe, you're playing with Transformers, all of those kinds of things. So there was this new ecosystem for you to jump into that you opted not to. Yeah. So that must be some sort of sign about how you felt about it at that time. But I'm wondering if you do remember anything about that time and if you felt that it was if you were like trepidations and scared because I think one of the interesting things that they do in that intro with the librarian is the music indicates that it's not a horror movie and that it's more of like a zany mystery of some sort that's a great so movie. I think they do a nice job of like balancing the two but talk to me a little bit about if you do remember that that summer viewing and if you remember how you looked at the movie if you were scared or whatever
2: yeah, I went to, this was one of the movies that Aunt Joni took me to in 1984. And during that sort of two or three years, I was seeing a lot of movies with her on the weekends. You know, I would go stay at Grandma's, go out with Aunt Joni, you know, Karate Kid, Back to the Future, Ghostbusters was a big one. All the mo- all blockbuster blockbustery movies of that era, we went to go see together. So I remember seeing it at night, and I remember thinking it was fun. And I don't remember, I was 10, I would be 11 later that year. I don't remember being scared by it. I remember, one thing I remember was Bill Murray in particular. He, I knew there was something to him, even though I didn't really see a lot with him at that point, because I remember mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, our aunts and uncles, like laughing at him on TV because of his SNL performances in the 70s and to the 80s. So I already remember, like he he was a thing, like he was some he was somebody to watch, and I guess I I felt that magnetism even though I didn't really know his shtick at that time. So I remember really kind of um, feeling like Bill Murray was a thing, and then also the effects. You know, I felt like a lot of those effects where they were hand animated effects, early CG, the stop motion, the rear projection, the color gels, all that kind of stuff, like practical effects and all that. I remember feeling like kind of lumping that visual treatment in and maybe this was, you know, maybe this was ILM's, you know, imprint or fingerprint on the thing, but I remember kind of lumping it in with like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Poltergeist, Empire Strikes Back. Like it felt the same to me when you see the devil dogs running, you know, it's a stop motion and it kind of looks like the Tauntons. I remember feeling like, okay, like this is in the same vein or this was made by the same hands as the people that created those other things. And maybe the first time I realized that, especially in a feature film capacity, like, okay, the same teams of people are making these things. They're doing the stop motion skeletons in the poltergeist pool in the backyard. And they're doing the ending at Raiders where they're, you know, the, the spirits are coming out of the Ark of the covenant and all that kind of stuff. Like, all right, these are the same people. I remember responding to that, but also like from a collecting standpoint, I'm not sure how fast the, I remember the t-shirts being a big thing right away. But as far as toys and lunch boxes and merch and everything like that, I think two things. One, I was starting to get out of that stuff at that age. I was starting to make my way out. And I, again, like I had to be very selective because you got the report card, Christmas, birthday thing. It was like Star Wars, Transformers, and G.I. Joe was enough. Like even if something was really cool, I wasn't even going to be going in for it. Like I wasn't going to go into the Karate Kid toys, even though I liked the movie. So, you know, we had to be very selective back then with, like, the things that we collected. At least I felt that way with the things we collected. But, um, now, funnily enough, now I could see, like, the Ecto-1, I think it's all, and the proton packs, and the, you know, the, the meters and everything, I think they're amazing. Like, the, the siren sound of the Ecto-1 is one of the coolest sounds I could think of from 80 films, like, 80 films. I, I just wanted to hear it over and over again. You know what I mean? I was like, wow, that's an amazing, it's a character, You know, that's one of those things like the DeLorean in Back to the Future Mm. becomes another important character and, you know, an 80s touchstone.
1: So you had brought up, obviously, the characters before and how Bill Murray kind of shines and more more than the others. And I found that ironic because it's Aykroyd and Ramis that wrote this movie. Yeah, So it's interesting, too, that they kind of took a backseat, at least it seems, to another comedic mind in some way. But I, I was wondering if we can get into some of these characters specifically because in my mind, there are really only six characters of consequence, like the four Ghostbusters, three plus one, four Ghostbusters, Harold Ramis's character and Sigourney Weaver's character are in my mind. Really all that were relevant. You have Peck and some other people, but so talk to me a little bit about how you feel about these various guys and and what they bring to the table. I mean, I really liked. I like early 80s comedy stripes that kind of stuff like it's there, there's something to like about Bill Murray and I guess that that late 70s early 80s SNL feel that is quite foreign today too and, and I think that humor is actually quite foreign today it's unique and it's interesting and there's only a certain amount of people that could really pull it off so I liked you know Venkman kind of being the the clown and Stance kind of being the wide eyed believer and Egon kind of being the tech and all of the rest. And again, it just made me regret that we didn't get to see them more in their academic setting because it would have been cool for them to have gotten kicked out later in the movie. Like they're investigating things in New York at the New York Public Library and then academics kind of get involved and they're like, what are you guys doing and all that? There's just a different way to kind of, in my mind, have written the movie such that we got to know these guys a lot more as a crew why did why are they so ride or die for each other like we don't even know why no no clue ray stance goes and takes out a more another mortgage at eight percent or something and it's funny because he then just like wastes the money and they have to kind of stand back and do it because it's his money so they buy the shitty firehouse they buy i love how he's like he bought the hearse or whatever for like forty eight hundred bucks or something like that it's like outrageous amount of money back then and so it's very funny but i wish they just I wish we just got to know those guys in that academic setting more and I can't help but feel like the the card scene with Bill Murray with Venkman is with the girl and the guy is like one of the great scenes because it's the only time we really get to or one of the only times we really get to see him and his uh, and his kind of skeevy element you know we see it a little bit with Sigourney Weaver and him as well but that's kind of how I feel I mean how do you feel about this this cast
2: yeah I mean you you said it so well that scene where the Venkman character is testing the two kids, like the the nerdy kid and the hot girl, and he's doing the ESP test. And he's obviously really biased to the cute girl. It's a really great character-building scene, and it's one of the few. This, this movie really has you wanting, at least for me, and I, I'm sure you're the same way, has you wanting more as far as the character relationships and their histories. There's even one scene, a brief mention, where Stance says to Venkman, like, you never did study type thing, and you're just like, "Oh, give us more like you you're you're acknowledging that there's a history there, but that's it it's 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 glossed upon, and then it's out, you know, so you get every little you're spoon fed those little things, and you want you're left wanting more because they're 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 characters with great potential. I think the venkman character, obviously he's the sarcastic womanizer, I think Bill Murray's performance is really cool, you know he's like the front man of the band, right and it does seem like the other other characters or the other actors are kind of moving out of his way a little bit to me. You could kind of see that. And I wonder if that's due to like Bill Murray being a force of nature, or is that due to like the fear he instills? You know, he's a famous curmudgeon, famously difficult to work with, famously difficult to get a hold of when, when he's not working, that t- type of thing. But the thing that I think is special about his performance is that he is this like seedy, swaggering conceited womanizing dude but you still like him you still like the character somehow like definitely despite the bravado there's something still gregarious about him and i i found myself responding to that and asking like why do i still dig this dude and that i think it's because you see him genuinely caring for his friends and stuff too at the same time so he's got that gray mixed you know he's got you know he's obviously a little bit shady he's obviously a little bit coming on too strong to the women but you see that he cares for his friends and stuff so you have that balance so he feels real you know which is actually actually a cool character trait to give him a little grey and like this basically this comic vehicle but I found myself getting the most frustrated again with the Ray stance character because you said the wide eyed thing is a great description you know he's the sincere straight man basically and um very much like Linus from Charlie Brown like he's smart he's wears his heart on his sleeve but he's really under really an underdeveloped character if you look at him you really almost like he's purposely again seating the stage so that Murray could you know shine a little bit more which is unfortunate because I want a little more from Ackroyd especially knowing that you know he co-wrote this thing and a lot of it was supposedly founded on his real life belief in the supernatural and the fact that he was real—he's really into that as a in a in a hobbyist capacity. Like, he's really down for reading about it, and supposedly it runs in his family. Like his grandfather was really into it and stuff in real life. So, and again, it would have been really cool to have a little more of that fleshed out Leo, Raph, Mikey, Donnie type thing going on sure. with the characters. I feel like they were almost there. We just need a little more. Whether it needed the movie need to be a little longer to show a little bit of those histories or flesh that out, I'm not sure. And then, you know, Egon is an interesting character too, because you hear everybody say the same thing about Egon. And I love Harold Ramis. I think he's very appealing. But, you know, you have this brilliant but socially awkward geek. You know, the prototypical geek that we would see in an eighties film. But the thing that strikes me that you never hear anyone talk about is like he's not socially awkward. He's unapologetically awkward. There's there's a difference. He's purposely being aloof. You know, he's a little bit more of that brand of nerd, like the unapologetic, like I'm the tech geek. I know the chicks interested in me. I'm not really interested, like that type of right, thing. Right. But you wanted to see that. You want again. You want to see that more pushed to the the foreground too, like you know he kind of plays it back a little bit you gotta again read into it and then the winston zettimore character man is just confounding it's really really one of the strangest parts of the movie again he comes in late i think he's intended as the everyday joe or as like the audience surrogate like our proxy into this weird group of eccentric scientists right because he says
1: like whatever you know if it comes with a paycheck i'll believe right
2: yeah he's the he's the work a day guy you know he's there for the paycheck he's there to get the job done or whatever He's he's extremely likable. I think Ernie Hudson is a I think I think he's a great character actor. It was interesting to look at his filmography and know that he was in TV, like dating back to like the Dukes of Hazard and different strokes and the A team and all these other things. Um, maybe Maud and stuff like that. So he was an interesting choice because I know when Dan Aykroyd was developing it still for other actors that Eddie Murphy was in that sort of contingent of people that were supposed to be in it. And when Murphy, I guess, committed to 48 Hours or became Eddie Murphy and dropped out, and Belushi passed away, who was also supposed to be in it, was, of course, Dan Ak- one of Dan Aykroyd's best friends. I wonder if they, you know, I wonder if he was the answer to having a Bill Murray type in it, even though he's not really a Bill Murray type. Did they want to, you know, did they feel like they had to have some racial diversity in there? I don't know. I don't hear that's any... That's how I felt. I mean, that's Even how in I researching kind of felt it, about it, you don't hear anybody talk about it. So it's a very, even though you know, Winston Zeddemore is a great, he has some great lines in the film and stuff. Again, he's like, you want more. It's like, give me more right. of this dude.
1: And I, I could figure out a way to get him in the movie in a better way. If you want, if you wanted to assume that he's just the everyman, he's a more of a blue collar guy working with these, these PhDs or whatever, then it would have been cool if he was at the college with them. And sure. he was like the janitor on their floor, but he, or, you know, something like that. I'm not you know trying to demean the character, but he's the janitor. He's the, he's the engineer on the floor or the, 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 the building ops guy and he but he likes though he likes these guys and when they get fired he's like fuck it i'm gonna go with them i like them i like their experiments and all that like there's a way to like bring him in from the beginning absolutely so it doesn't feel like they just graft him on later and again that scene with with janine and him where i think it's dan Aykroyd, where they just like yeah you're great you're hired take the blah 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 and it's like it almost seemed knowing like what why are you like what? this it just did you even ask for like when did we even know that you were looking for help by the way
2: <laughs> we find out like 30s i mean why not make him like the fourth musketeer maybe they have a scientific background with him they went to school with him he's the kind of the guy hanging around with them all the time but he's the famous non-believer you know he's the naysayer that gets sucked in because he mm. finally witnesses something like it it could have been easy you know what i mean and and make him feel like a contemporary at the same time
1: you know right well, right i fun. like that like he they all get fired and he's like, but I didn't do anything. And so he's kind of just with these dudes, right? That's, That's another. Yeah. It's, that, right. Yeah.
2: Harold Ray must give us a call. I know he passed away seven years ago, but give us a call. If you think of it. We're down from the other side. <laughs> Speaking of ghostbusting. It's
1: terrible. <laughs> so we we talked a little bit about, you know, the Ghostbusters here, but I wanted to I wanted to go in a little bit further on to Egon. I, I don't know why I was so interested in this character. There are little things That I really love. One of the scenes I like is when they're in the firehouse and they're eating Chinese food and they're talking about how it's like the last of their money. And he's like just he's not even eating. And they like are like, let's cheers, whatever. And he just picks up his thing and cheers and then puts it back down and he still just keeps working without eating. What I find funny about that scene is he's drinking a Coke and everyone else, they're all other everyone else is drinking bud. So there's just there are little things where I'm like, I like this character. Like I like what they're trying to tell us about this character, his seriousness. I love that his deadpan shit when he's like, you know, the, he, they're basically like nuclear reactors on their back and stuff. And it was it's just like totally illegal and fucked up all the things that they're doing. So I, I really did dig that character. But I wanted to get into what I think were the two character or I guess, yeah, three characters, let's say, on the side, although they're all important. We have Dana Barrett played by Sigourney Weaver. We have Lewis Tully played by Rick Moranis. And we have Janine Melnitz played by Annie Potts. And I feel like These three performances are just as strong, if not stronger in some ways, even than the Ghostbusters themselves. And I think that's the one thing you can say about this movie definitively, or at least that I feel like I could say is this movie has a very good cast and it is. The performances are really on point, the the characterizations, the intent. I just don't think they I just think it's such a shame like, I know it's crazy to say it's Ghostbusters. What the fuck do I know about filmmaking? But <laughs> to me, I just think I'm like, damn, dude, this could have been like some really some cool stuff, gr- more grounded and more scientific and more. It could have even been more comedic in that way, too, because of of the outrage. But what do you think about the side characters and how they play into it? And I, I got to tip my cap, especially to Rick Moranis, who I just think is everything about him is funny in this, like the way he walks, like when he runs and he's like waddling and he keeps locking himself <laughs> out of his apartment and. It's good shit. It's his, the whole tax party scene is really funny oh, when he like so introduces good. the people and he's going on and on about, he says something like, well, they got $15,000 left, <laughs> but it's at 8%. So they're okay. You know, something like that. It's so good. So yeah, anyway, talk to me about these kind of extraneous characters.
2: Yeah, well, he's great. I mean, the Louis Tully character seeing Rick Moranis, he feels so eighties, you know, he's got, he does, he has that funny physicality and he's got that face, you know, he's got that comedic mug which is really funny. It's interesting to hear that John Candy was initially supposed to play this character. And I could see a different brand of comedy, a different flavor of comedy, a different brand of comedic physicality that went along with that. But I like Moranis just for the creepy, borderline, stalkerish neighbor. I think he's really funny in that role because he's this little kind of unassuming dude, but he's a little bit creepy. You know, he's a little bit too forth forthright and everything right. like that he's like spying
1: basically on uh like he like because she's like sigourney weaver's like tips by behind the door without
2: him coming out his door right It's which is a funny
1: bit you know yeah, it is definitely
2: i love rick moranis is interesting to me we think about little shop of horrors we think about honey i shrunk the kids apparently there's a new one coming out this year later this is he year. gonna be in it is he yes in it? he's uh, oh, cool. he's one of the main dudes i think yeah i think josh Gad wrote it and he's co-starring in it but moranis came back and i know I always heard about Rick Moranis that he announced his retirement a long time ago and basically said like, I'm not retired, but I'm only coming out of retirement to do very specific things. Like I'm not retired. I'm just ultra selective, you know, but apparently he was a widower and he basically left acting in the late nineties to care for his kids, which I didn't read. I had to read that on his Wikipedia and his filmography and everything which is really interesting to me. And then he came back slowly in the aughts and uh, I think, you know, 10 years ago-ish with comedy albums and stuff, just returning to his comedic roots. But he was interesting in knowing that he always said, like, I'm not really an actor. Like, I would do Spaceballs or I would do Ghostbusters. And I felt like my role was coming in and making the performance, making the lines, making the reads and everything funnier than they were on the page. Like, that was my job to, like, plus things but i wasn't coming in as like some actor to like be spoon-fed a writer's like precious lines like that's right, not right. what i want to do and you could see that in his performance you know he he's got that physicality blended with the funny delivery he's got the even the funny way he holds his mouth like it's very specific just onto rick moranis so yeah he I, you couldn't imagine anyone else in the role even though it's a, a lesser role a supporting role i think it's a lot of fun yeah, the Janine Melnitz character, dude. For you guys who haven't seen the Afterlife trailer yet, I'll give you a second to get out of the room, but there's something I have to say about it. Even not being a big Ghostbusters guy, seeing, now, it's probably pretty um, common knowledge that everybody's reprised their roles for Afterlife, except for Ramus, obviously.
1: <laughs> Do they explain, it like, is he, does he die in their lore or something like that?
2: Yeah, well, I, th- I don't want to ruin that. If you guys watched the trailer, it explains some of that. And it's a very touching tribute. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's a very touch. Like, it seems like what they're modeling the story around without any spoil, spoiling you guys anything, it seems like a very loving tribute to him specifically, which is, I think, really, really classy. You know? What were you going to say, C?
1: Well, I was just going to say, I think Bill Murray was the reason that they never got to do it the right way, right? And I think a lot holdout. of people were mad. I think people were mad about that. And yeah. I think that he finally... Because... I don't think anyone expected Howard Ramis to die. And I think I think in his mind, he was just like, we'll get to it eventually. I I really think that that's kind of what he was thinking. You know,
2: that's a really great point. The tragedy inherent in just waiting too long. Right. So
1: I think the the 2016 Ghostbusters, which I didn't see, and I have no No, affiliation with at all. People hate that movie. And I think that they couldn't leave it on that note. So I think that this is an interesting way to kind of go back to the well. And I think it was Red Letter Media that made the point that they're trying to revive Ghostbusters into like some sort of universe, a okay. sub production company and all okay. that. So this might be the way that they're they're attempting to do that again. And I was pleased that so many people were enjoying this film and seeing that it's like kind of getting bad reviews from that. That's you know, right. Critics, the reviews are it, out now, aren't they? It, yeah. It's yeah. like that. That a lot of people are taking that as a great sign um, I think because you could see it in the trailer.
2: Yeah. You know, you got Paul Rudd. Mm-hmm. You got Finn Wolfhard. You got some you got some you got some who's in there that'll help for the draw but you could just tell by the trailer that it's going to be a proper send up to the original series and I think what they're basing the story around is really is really touching but I seeing the Annie Potts character in the trailer and the one line she delivers got me emotional and that's coming from not a Ghostbusters guy you know although I love this movie I think the 1984 movie is great but yeah I was like wow and you know it's it's little notes like that that you know it's the movie's gonna hit you know, they just got it right. And of course Jason Reitman is directing it, so it's a legacy, it's a proper passing of the baton from Ivan Reitman. So, you know, I think I think it seems like they're doing it, they're doing it correctly. But I love the Annie Potts character, and I probably talk about this maybe a little too much on the show. Maybe I'm showing my hand a little too much here, but for me, like one of those prototypical eighties cute, nerdy chick characters. You know. Sure just just adorable and i love the unflappable secretary you slash receptionist cute but kind of cold yeah like disinterested outward yeah. emotion you know like the yeah. telephone operator like right you know like please hold like you know that type of thing but yeah,
1: yeah kind of like sounds like harley quinn a little bit that was a pretty good impression yeah
2: oh uh, yeah you know what yes you know what that's true yeah. even though one's outwardly Malevolent,
1: no, right? But, but
2: it's like but it's that yeah
1: you know like that yeah the squeaky
2: <laughs> yeah. almost like I guess like you could say the
1: nanny, who's yeah like exactly drescher. F- Fran drescher yeah it's of, no it's her, exactly right her yeah.
2: delivery. But you know the thing about the Annie character that's cool is she does have that soft spot whatever Egon's involved because she has the crush on Egon. So that's a little bit of the dimension in the character. She might have the most dimension of any character, ironically, you know, which is interesting. But, Kyle, the last one I want to talk about, and I want to toss it over to you, I want to see what you think about Sigourney Weaver in this movie. Mm -mm. Mm. She's, I mean, a franchise maven, right? Everybody thinks of her associated with the Alien franchise. Great, great actress. I mean, has done a lot of really, you know, could kind of switch between comedy and not taking herself too seriously and then doing really roles with a lot of gravity that she wins awards for. Like, she could switch back and forth. I love that diversity, but and having the ability to go both ways, but something oh. that struck, oh, well, they, I mean, she does more power right. to her. Sure, sure. But, you know, one thing that struck me about her in this movie, is like, you know, I said to myself at one point, I was like, man, she could really ground the hell out of a, uh, out of a flick. You know, she could take the oddest of characters and stories, and things that are happening, and make them feel completely real and believable. It's crazy. She's acting like a crazy person in this movie. And it feels... It's, it's fun, but it feels like you know, like she's hamming it up a little bit but at the same time it's like, wow, like I buy this. And you know, like of course for me that started with Alien. The first Alien oh, where she's in course. this unreal situation in this obvious fantasy setting where she's making everything feel so grounded. It's a very... Even though this is different, it's a very similar thing overall that she's achieving. You know, with her acting and, um, you know, she was also quite beautiful. I don't think I realized how beautiful she was when she yeah, was she's young because they frump yeah. her up in Alien. It's a different thing five years prior. But I was like, wow, she's really she was really pretty. And she's I think she's even older than mom and dad.
1: <laughs> yeah, she's seven, she's 72. I was looking right? at that, too, because I was curious about her filmography. You know, she pops up. We know who she is. I actually remarked to Michael when we were watching Ghostbusters. I, I said, shit, I don't even remember Sigourney Weaver being in this at all. And I was remarking, I'm like, 84, Alien 79. I was like, this might be an it's funny you brought her up, her aesthetic specifically because I'm like, this might be a surprise to a lot of people because she she looks like a normal woman here. Yeah. And like you said, Ripley and Alien is uh, Aliens universe is basically asexual. It yeah, it's matter. the void of sex, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's a, like it's like Mass Effect in the sense that like there's certainly sex, but it's sexless, if that makes any sense. Genderless, let's say. Uh, sure. Battlestar yeah, is the same way, way. I put it. yeah, you know dudes punching chicks in the face and stuff like that it's just that's just the way it goes nothing you actually want to do that but that's that's what happens <laughs> in those spaces you know starship troopers and shit like that so uh which was another thing we have to do at some point oh maybe yeah. the book, maybe Good the book point. will do but with sigourney weaver i was surprised to see that she didn't do very much in between alien in this movie so i think that because i was like oh five years she must have gotten huge after alien so she probably did seven thousand things but she didn't I think she did like three movies in between Alien and this. So I think she popped back up for a lot of people, especially in this. um, It's not pre-home media, but for most people, it's pre-home media era where you're going to see Sigourney Weaver in the theater. You're going to see her in a trailer. And that's the end. That's the end of seeing Sigourney Weaver. So I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it um, was probably a nice and interesting surprise to see her in this for people. And again, the two things that bothered me about her, were, were number one, really interesting, like she's a musician. She's like a professional. She's an orchestral musician, but I don't even understand how we learned that about her before we were just expected to know that. So I think that they could have brought more to bear about that as well. And maybe she's, she has her own thing in her own house, but maybe she's part of the library situation. Maybe she's out in the stacks looking at some old arcane music. And so again, I want to bring it all back to that that area to kind of ground everyone and get to know them more through a specific lens. But the other thing I thought was just kind of strange about her performance was I didn't really understand Her, I didn't believe her. Her love of um of Venkman, like yeah, her, because Venkman is. And she says, "You're so odd to him." One, that's what she says. You're so odd, which is funny because he's like giving an inner monologue to himself as he's leaving. It's a very funny scene, but it's like, why do you like this dude? He's a scumbag, right? Like you know, he's a scumbag. I love the line when he meets her outside the. uh, the orchestra the orchestra hall and he's like you were the best in your row or whatever it's like a great line you know it's like such a nonsensical <laughs> line so it's very funny i wonder if some of it's ad-libbed it might be but i just never believed her relationship with him like when she's walking out of the orchestra with that other guy he has like a small case it looks like he plays I don't a french horn or something and it's it's like well what why wouldn't you want to be with that guy he right. seems to un so I, I just I know it's a comedy and you're not supposed to really believe it. But I think the reason I find myself frustrated with all these angles is because there's so much potential to do even greater things here. And you had brought up earlier, Dave, New York being a character. It's totally true. One of the things that I think they do that detracts from New York being a character is that in in her apartment, in Sigourney Weaver's apartment, it is clearly a set. And it bothers me. It really took me out of of it, because I'm like, why are you? Why is this so especially the night scenes? I'm like, this looks like shit. You you are in, in New York City. It has a very specific look when you look out of windows in New York City. Sure. Go to a real apartment. You have like it's not a small production. They did. It's like thirty five million dollars or something, 30 million dollars. A lot of money, 1984 money. to make yeah, a film. Then, Star sure. Wars was made for ten million dollars as <laughs> an example. So. Go and fucking rent an apartment in New York City, you know, so we can get the cool shots that characterize the city. And it might be lost on other people. But to me, it was like it's like I'm looking at fucking Gotham or something like that. It doesn't even look like new, you know, you know what I mean? Because it just doesn't look right. And so. I guess Ghostbusters to me, all of this is just a tale of just just not meeting my expectations in a lot of different ways, or maybe not taking full advantage of what I think would justify this film's fame, you know, National Film Registry, Library of Congress kind of shit. I mean, that's a big deal. And that this film is on that level, but
2: oh, I just absolutely. feel like it comes.
1: I just feel like it's a dollar short in yeah, every way. You
2: know what? You're you really right about that. You really do feel those scenes that, especially the big action scenes and the big set piece scenes, the Hollywood soundstage and sets. They kind of run up against the authentic New York backdrops. Like you, you're going out of your way to show the firehouse. You're going out of your way to show Central Park West, Lincoln Center, City Hall the New York public library, like, especially like what you're saying about the Sigourney Weaver characters apartment, central park, West, a very distinctive part of the city. It would, that, that would definitely play with Lincoln center and what she does for a living with the music. Like it's all mindfully concocted to feel like, all right, she lives in this part of the city. You know, she lives at 60 something and like central park West and she's within a stone's throw of the, of the, where she performs at Lincoln center and all that kind of thing. I know that part of the city well, because I worked there for years. And then you kind of, yeah, you kind of take yourself out of it, especially people, you know, authentic New Yorkers or people that know New York. You feel like, all right, now you're doing the soundstage. Now you're on some kind of Hollywood, you know, backdrop set type thing. Yeah, Like the
1: top of the building, the the top of the, excuse me, the spire that they keep showing like this looks horrible. Yeah, it's bad. It's like, I don't know if I don't know. Is that your intention for it to look horrible? Because we just did Labyrinth which came out a couple years after this. Sure. And very different movies. But Labyrinth is immaculate, right? Like completely immaculate. Yeah, it's with its gone. sets. And this looks like shit. It just that really did bother me, too, where I'm like, man, you're in New York. Think about I know you haven't played the Insomniac Spider-Man games yet, but even some of the Spider-Man films like think about, as you said, New York being a character. We, we talked about the late 70s seminal gang film the warriors oh, I and mean, we're talking about God, how I much that about recently right a wonderful movie so about, and good. new york is so vital in that and you're right 1984 this was probably filmed in 83 new york city is awesome it's probably I filmed recently. in like the summer into the fall of 1983 it seems and Man, you could have captured a lot of great things. Now, they did. You're you're right. They're outside of Lincoln Center. I think there's a couple scenes in Washington Square Park. Yeah, they're they're definitely in some different places. But I just feel like that bothered me a lot because I just couldn't stop looking out her windows where I'm like, this looks so (laughs) bad. You know,
2: tavern on the green Union Square. Like, right. Yeah. Make it feel like even if you don't know, I would argue even if you don't know New York, it's probably something in the look and feel that feels authentic. And when you sort of take the audience out of that it's jarring you know it's like all right now we're now it's a movie again and it feels a little you're right a lot of those action scenes feel because of the backdrops especially feel a little b-movie-ish
1: you know they really do it definitely it definitely does uh and even the i, I guess the hype the high point of the movie for me is the really the middle where they go to the sedgwick you meet that really funny kind of hotelier and the woman's trying to get into the ballroom. They're fucking everything up. It's like pure comedy. They're shooting the proton packs at like the the maid and just oh, screwing up, scene. just destroying this place. Very funny. The slimer but I, scene. Yeah, the sli- exactly. The slimer yeah. scene. Yeah. But I think and I really do love the library scenes like in the beginning with the old woman and them exploring it. And I, I love when they get the first goo like slime sample and he's like wiping his hands on the books. I was I was actually thinking about that. I'm like, man, people must have been so mad at Bill, Bill Murray on the st- on the set because he got he was just wiping that shit <laughs> everywhere, and they were really in the library, as far as I understand. So yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh my god, that was so annoying. But and by the way, my favorite my favorite line is also in the hotel scene. I do want to shout this out when the guy is out. There's just a the random like hotel patron outside the the uh, the elevator, and he's like, "What are you supposed to be? Some kind of cosmonauts?" It's a great <laughs> great line
2: that a <laughs> really great, great, great too.
1: <laughs> yeah, like a, a good uh, a good bit actor. Now, th- one of the things I wanted to talk to you about as well was the grounding of the film with what I was surprised to see a a, a shocking amount of product placement yes. for a movie that I don't know if they they you asked the question, do they know? And I my answer is I don't think so. Because even if you look at, at um Ivan Reitman's filmography afterwards, like you can see the kind of movies they were making, like kindergarten cop, twins, junior, obviously a lot of like Schwarzenegger, you know, stuff and all that. So like I don't think that he was necessarily trying to get into the high art of comedy with this movie. But nonetheless, I think that one of the cool things about that is the grounding element of getting some of these brands in there. And I always like to talk about that. I love there's a scene where Egon's eating Cheez Its. Um, they drink a lot of Coke and Budweiser. Yeah. I love seeing Larry King, he's smoking a cigarette, but it's when he's still on the radio which is awesome. That's so that so was like cool. that, was that was pre-CNN, so cool. you know, because he obviously is famous for CNN, but CNN didn't even exist at this point. Casey Kasem isn't in it. I was bummed he's on it, though. Like you, you hear him. You so hear they must him. have sent yep. Casey Kasem like a thing like, can you record a cool little bit for us? So it was cool to see that. I loved the seeing Con Edison gear because that just reminds me of being young. I remember my blocks were in a huge Con Edison bag that Dad got me. Oh, that's cool. And, and then seeing like some of the papers like USA Today for 25 cents, which is funny because that paper has always been the most expensive and The Atlantic, they do like a story in The Atlantic, which is still a publication today. I just think it's cool to see those kinds of touchstones and also see how little things change. That That's always what I love. Like when they're, I love supermarket scenes in movies we talked about when we did Kramer versus Kramer, there's that really great scene of them in the supermarket and you just get to see how nothing has changed. Oh, there's Tide. You know, there's Coca-Cola, crazy. there's Clorox, you know, it's, it's just, you know, and this was like 1974 or something when they were doing that film. And, and it's, ni- you know, 2021 when we're recording this podcast. So, And I also enjoyed dig the technical talk in science. And I think this is one of the another one of the things that they could have achieved more with. The movie seemed believable. And what I mean by that is, even though we know that w- at least one of them is kind of a confidence man, right, that and it has like a confidence game going with people that they do have, they have PhDs and scientific credentials. And I like that they do talk about like, why can't we, even though it's like, don't cross the streams, obviously a famous thing in right. Ghostbusters, but why not? Like what's in the proton pack? How are they keeping the ghosts? How do these different devices work? And I really liked that they at least tempted to, attempted to ground it in some sort of, sort of scientific reality, which is why I think that, them being fired together would have been, so, and they do, but getting fired together and understanding more of that element where they're just, they're almost like alchemists where no one believes their science. I just think that that would have been really cool. So I found a little bit of a dissonance there, but I enjoyed those things as well. So I'll, I'll throw it back to you if you have anything to say about the brands or the science talk and all, and kind of the the, achieve, the achievement or lack thereof of of believability in the movie.
2: Yeah, I mean, with the brands, it is interesting what you said strikes me because you realize The importance of advertising and brand and how some things really don't change like coke is probably never going to change away from a red label like it's just too important you know is tide ever going to change away from that orange and blue logo thing like it's interesting how it's nostalgic but it is just as interesting to see how things have changed versus how some things have stayed stayed the same i think there was maybe even some brands that don't exist anymore like there's a um, a box of like high ho crackers.
1: Yeah, yeah, I saw them the eating bag. that too. Yeah, those right. are, like butter butter cr- crackers kind of. And that right, was like a whatever.
2: competitor for Nabisco, but I guess maybe maybe they are still around in some iteration, but maybe one that didn't you know withstand the test of time. And then like of course like the iconic this is the one that really stole the show from me the iconic blue wise potato chip bag with like the yellow oh, yeah, tag awesome and too. the owl like yeah. that was very that is something that has changed. And then, you know, for me too, like, especially mid 80s, like that specific era, I love looking at the cars, the car models and just, you know, the way the cars were designed during that age. But also that was the time mid to, you know, early to mid 80s where we started to see a rapid influx of Japanese cars. So Toyota, Subaru, Honda, all the Mazda, all the Japanese brands, they were starting to become really a lot more, you know, a lot more mixed in with the American the typical American brands, GM and Pontiac and all of those, which is really interesting. I love to see the old models of taxi cabs. That's really cool. It's really a throwback to how it felt to first see the movie. You know, what we go outside, and that was really what was on the streets. I love I love seeing that, you know. And, you know, that, the other thing too, something that they did very cleverly with something, that an iconic part of the movie that I had forgotten about, Kyle, before I forget to mention it, is the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Of course. It's cr- it's first of all, it comes in the last 15 minutes of the movie.
1: And it's I like really how they foreshadow only- it by the way. I, I didn't realize as a kid, obviously. They foreshadow it in her in her kitchen. Yes. She has like stay- with the bag, yeah, of mar- was- the of yeah. scene where the the right. are
2: frying on the counter. Right. I don't think I noticed a as as a kid either. And <laughs> it's funny because not only does it come so late in the film, but he's probably only on screen for three or four minutes. That whole encounter or that whole you know boss battle is only a few minutes and but I always thought it was so clever to have this sort of, um, I don't know Mr. Peanut Bob's big boy mixed with the Michelin man type of character, but to have this like vicious, threatening Kaiju character, King Kong mm, meets exactly. Godzilla, but have it this cute thing. You know, it was always such a big part of what I think about the imagery associated with Ghostbusters. It shocked me how short it was on screen. But I think they, we'll talk about the effects a little bit, but I think they handled it pretty well. They were able to, some of the compositing's a little wonky. Sometimes you could see it's rear-projected onto the back of a set and stuff like that. It doesn't certainly fall short by today's standards. But I thought they were some of the, least egregious effects the state puff stuff I, I it was a lot of fun to see that again because i forgot how they treated it
1: yeah it, he is a he, I mean, obviously an iconic character and it was cool to see slimer too i i really mm. like that that character it reminded me god it just brought me right back now i was thinking about how this was possible and i think that i realized how it was but i was like man i loved that green high c but how do i remember oh, that go cooler and, yeah and i was yeah, like oh man. that was from ghostbusters 2 as i okay. remember right because I, I remember
2: later. Right. Because my yeah, mom used to buy like 80s. the
1: big cylindrical metal, you know, things and you'd pop the hole the in it or whatever. I hate that shit. It's so gross when you think about it. Because then, then you put it in the fridge and it just absorbs everything in the fridge. It's like leaving butter out in the fridge. It's yeah, like, really. That's true. Yeah. Like, why don't you put fish and butter next to each other in the fridge and see how that <laughs> works out for you? <laughs> So it's it's uh so that always gross me out. I hate expose things in the fridge like Micah puts pizza like a pizza box in the fridge. I'm like, oh, I'm, not, I'm never touching that. You
2: again. can't now you can't eat because no, it's stuck No, in like everything. you got to put it in
1: a bag. You got to put it in a bag. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Ziploc. Ziploc. I'm, yeah, that I'm shit, never dude. eating that again.
1: The technical stuff. Yeah. I was curious what you thought about that, because I was some of it looked great and some of it looked horrible. And I felt like the I don't know, that that scene after Harold Ramis with the, the creature escapes from his apartment like the wolf type creature. Yeah. I don't know if it's stop motion or something. I'm like, man, this looks horrible. It's, bad. you know, like I, it's really bad. It's bad, but I, 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 they did the best they could or whatever, I guess with it, I wasn't really too impressed. I mean, it is 1984 though. So I guess we have to forgive them for that.
2: Yeah. It's fun to see a 1984 movie and the level of effects, even in a big budget movie like this, because it again, it harkens back to that period. And it's part of the nostalgia. It's part of those retro feels, you know, the stop motion. well, I'll say this. The practical stuff in this movie is really cool. Like the cards flying out of the Dewey Decimal System, the drawers, um, the newspapers flying out of the newsstand. Like they made the practical effects feel really kinetic and organic and real in this. Like they did a great, and the, you know, that could be done with strings and fans and you know what I mean? Spit and like a little bit of scotch tape. Like that stuff is easy if you know how to do it and you know how to make it look good on, on camera in that you know, in that frame ratio or whatever. So I love that. I think that stuff holds up. The stop motion, and I like that there's a hodgepodge, like there's early digital stuff going on. I think there's some traditional animation of like the ghostly apparition entering the taxi cab's tailpipe. You could tell some of that's hand-drawn animation and, you know, done with like colored gels under glass and stuff. And then there's some early CG stuff, which is interesting to see too. And I think they might admit they might have treated the stop, uh, the stay-puffed guy with a a mixture of things. You know, Actual actually making mock-ups of, like, the big leg, but then some of it might have been a little early CG, some stop-motion. But the stop-motion stuff of, like, those demon dogs is, like... It's pretty bad. Not only is it compositive, you know, it's composited kind of in an odd way, like, you could see the seams. But, you know, this came... A year or two or three after the Tauntauns and Empire, after the Scout Walkers and Return of the Jedi, like there's a really egregious scene where that Devil Dog leaves the building and the Lewis Tully character is running across the street and then jumps over the wall into Central Park and the dog follows him. It's really poorly animated and composited. It just feels like. Almost like you're watching a student film or something. It's like whoa,
1: like yeah, I definitely noticed how bad it looked to I mean, look, personally.
2: Yeah, it didn't look good. The frame rate looked off. It looked like it was floating. There were no real mats to make it feel grounded. Like again, you could see those seam lines. But for all in all, I really enjoy that because you know, again, you're judging it by today's standards. Thirty-five years later, it's gonna fall way short no matter what. So you might as well go back and see like. You know how it was done back then. I feel oddly, though. I feel like this movie. Think of something like Alien, right? Talking about Sigourney Weaver, like all we talked about Alien, and we talked about how good those effects hold up, and how grounded everything feels, and how timeless in a lot of way everything feels. Like they did such a good job that it holds up years later. I feel like this movie felt short. Like it feels like it feels. Um, it arrives short of the mark. Even for its time, you know, which is odd when you have a big budget and you have big, you know, studios like ILM behind it, or, you know, those those fabricators, those animators, those compositors, early CG guys and girls like, you know, it feels like they could have done a better job even for 1984 standards and they didn't. But it makes it part of the fun now talking about it years later.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, it is what it is. It's there. I wanted to touch on a couple more things before we go. Andrew Hanwell wrote in and said, hello, Colin and Dagan, what are your thoughts on the idea that Ghostbusters champion small business versus overreaching government? Mm. It's the EPA that shuts them down and releases all the ghosts. Is this a libertarian movie? I don't know that I see it that way, but it is funny because I was reading this pet character in a very specific way. And when I was thinking about what the relevance of this particular character is, it made a lot of sense. The EPA was not and environmentalism was not cool in in the early 80s at all. And obviously Earth Day is 1970. That's far before. But people have to remember Jimmy Carter in the United States was president in the late 70s. He put solar panels on the White House and did all these kinds of things. And we got embargoed for oil and everyone hated it. And I think everyone kind of blamed a lot of the badness, maybe rightfully so, in the late 70s on Carter and on. And I think he was the first environmentalist, modern environmentalist in some way. So I think that that pet character was kind of trying to take the piss out of that feeling and it made sense, but I just didn't understand where this character even came from or why he was necessary at all. Uh, th- they needed to release the ghosts, so they needed this guy to kind of force that to happen. But it just felt like a MacGuffin almost. Like, why do we even why is this dude here? So and weird. yeah, so talk to me a little bit about about, um, you know, the, the EPA guy Peck.
2: Yeah, I mean, it if, if really is probably one of the strangest things in the whole film when you really look at it again. It's like, OK, you need, you know, the guys need a baddie. They need an antagonist. They need somebody that represents an obstacle for them in the movie. I get it. Like, you need that for the drama, for the story. Have a obstacle to overcome. But, and you know, Walter Peck, the uh, William Atherton, he's got that, he does have that guy you love to hate quality to him. So he's definitely got that going for him. But making this guy some environmental EPA slash DEP... Guy is so weird. Like, why not? I understand having you have to fabricate some type of foil for the guys. Okay, right. They have to have some sort of challenge to surmount. But how could you? You know, you could have made this guy a competing scientist. You know, you could have made this guy maybe an occult figure that they're running afoul of. Maybe he's like, um, I wrote down like maybe he was like he's a PI that got kicked off the NYPD. Because of the Ghostbusters and he's exacting his revenge by going after them now. There's like there's a whole... I, I wrote that in three minutes. Like there's a... And I'm no genius. So there's like... There was a host of things you could do to make this character a little more interesting and he really does feel egregiously like just placed in there to cause a problem. And to, you know, to come up with awesome one-liners like that's right this man has no dick you know that's that which yeah, that is an awesome he's, line, just a, yeah. he's just a dummy for that he's just a prop right. a stand-in for like you know for bankman to deliver his his one-liners
1: <laughs> yeah i i totally agree strange character not needed jacob wrote in about a peculiar scene as well he said what in the world is up with that ghost blowjob scene oh is it yeah. just a dream i mean he's wearing some kind of colonial general outfit so maybe that's his fantasy or is that the time period when this woman died and became a ghost <laughs> He seems to have some kind of recognition that he is possibly in a dream as he looks around the room slightly confused and he clearly feels something because he rolls out of bed, most likely in elation. So is the ghost one that they had recently busted? No pun intended. Has an affinity for stance and poltergeist (laughs) did this scenario in his head. At any rate, the scene must have been influenced, uh, included at the insistence of Dan Aykroyd. This thing seems right up his alley. Yeah, I was actually shocked by that scene just because I was like, isn't this a children's movie or it's supposed to be like some sort of accessible film it came out right around the time when pg-13 was a thing as we know of course we talked about that ad nauseum on the show yeah but i don't know what that point that seemed weird and off color in some way like not like quite vulgar actually for the level of movie that i thought they were going for what did you make of that scene
2: it does feel very one-offish that scene it feels like an insert
1: (laughs) oh (laughs) oh i mean it seems to me that they wanted to it's like, yeah, we can make it so that the ghost can take his pants off without and like they're doing so- and I, I feel like it's just one of those ideas that we got to get this in, you know, somehow. Like oh, they have a where an we effect
2: got- on the material world somehow type no, of thing.
1: No, well, like- no, no, I'm saying like they're like this is a cool shot of the ghost undoing his pants. Like we have to do this. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, Because it's just yeah. cool, but it's it doesn't feel shit. right. It's totally different. It's like it feels like it's like now it's like, what are we now? We're watching 40 year old virgin now, you know? <laughs>
2: Right, they're going back into like Porky's or Christmas vacation territory. Like, we need a little more of that. It was—I'll tell you what—I was grateful that because Graydon and I were initially going to watch it with Helena. So I have to watch Ghostbusters. This is one thing you've never seen. This is iconographic. It's it's an iconic movie. You have to watch it. But I'm really glad I didn't because I didn't. A, he would have felt awkward, and then I don't want to have to explain. You know what I mean? What that meant, especially when I'm just trying to enjoy something. But I forgot about anything like. When I think back to Ghostbusters as a whole, and of course, having only seen it once, so what do I know? It did seem like accessible, like this man has no dick and the ghost blowjob scene. And, you know, some of them are relatively harmless. It's not a big deal, but they're not wholly for kids. It seemed like it was bringing in a little bit of that Caddyshack brand humor, like, you know, or you were almost going to see, you know, certain comedians pop up. Like you're, you know what I mean? Like that, you know, you almost thought you were going to get a little more of that raunchy 80s, late 70s, 80s comedy in there. And it did sort of almost like, it almost did seem like the bean counters of the executives. Like, can we get a little more? You know, Chevy's not going to be in this now. Can we, which he initially was going to be, you know, can we get a little more of that Chevy Chase type humor in there? Just you know, a couple for the dads, you know, the, let's do a couple for the dads War, in here. I
1: didn't know that was he, 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 and Bill Murray famously had beef, right? So they were going to yeah. do this movie together.
2: Yeah. He was initially talked about, um, all the guys you wouldn't initially hear in an 80s film, right? The whole SNL Walken. core. Yeah. Yeah. All the, all the guys you would hear about normally, all the SNL related people were at one point talked about for the cast. So it's interesting that it ended up the way it, it did. Like think about if Eddie Murphy was in the movie, would it take it on? just having that one actor or that one character in there could have really given the movie a whole different look and feel. Like those guys were forces of nature. Like those guys could have had a huge effect on a, on a hour and 45 minute movie could change the whole could change the whole dynamic, you know? So it's interesting how it, how it ended up.
1: Hayes and Brian master wrote in and said, we all know and love the Ray Parker jr. Theme song, but I wanted to give a quick shout out to the Elmer Bernstein score. His music adds a layer of classic elegance to the film while at the same time incorporating some really bizarre noises that perfectly evoke spooks, specters and or ghosts. One of the more unorthodox film soundtracks I've heard. Thanks. Yeah, I wanted to give a shout out. We talked about Ray Parker, of course. Everyone knows that song, but <laughs> I did say and I wrote my notes and I, I, I often don't talk about the score because I don't often care, but it stu- it did stick out to me because it really, I think, set the stage for what the movie was. It felt appropriate for some reason. It just seemed like this particular conductor or composer, was able to fuse the horror trope with a lightness that let you know that you shouldn't necessarily be very scared. And it's like I said in that intro scene, which I think is just so good, the music sets the stage. You know when that, when the Ghostbusters logo comes up, should you be scared or should you kind of be like eager and excited? And I think the soundtrack does a nice job of, of catering to the latter. Do you have anything to say about the score?
2: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about the score. You know, there's a lightness, and a fun to it, it's, it's, it's jaunty, you know, it lets you know, like, yeah, there's, it's not threatening, it's playful, you know, and, and if it crosses over into spooky, scary territory where it's ratcheting up the tension a little bit, you know, you know, it's doing it in a lighthearted way, which is really, you know, which is really fun, and it feels also very 80s to me, and I have to give a shout out, of course, you know, the Ray Parker Jr. song, I didn't know it went to number one for three weeks, I knew it was in the top 40 somewhere, but apparently it was on Billboard's Top 100, at number one for like three weeks in the United States, which is a, you know, I remember like every time you have to remember the eighties. A lot of you guys are too young. It was radio. It was FM AM cassette. Mm-hmm. That was within the car. Mostly listening to the stuff in the car before we were old enough to have our own little stereo or boom box. But even if you put in your car backyard at the pool with the boom box, whatever, they would play the same song. If the song was hot, they would play it every hour. So this is one of those songs that would play every seven or eight songs. For an entire summer. You know what I mean? Like, it was... I have to say, though, the song is really good. The Ray Parker Jr. song is really a good song. I, I it really is awesome. It holds up. It's but awesome. But for me, there was a song in this that I never realized. Was, I, I swore up and down it was a Lou Reed song until I looked it up. This song, Magic, by Mick Smiley. I have no idea who this guy is. Me neither. But it sounds like a Lou Reed. It sounds like Mick Smiley doing Lou Reed. But that song is really good. I love it. And I have to give a shout-out to my girl, Laura Branigan. Hot Night is the song in this movie, but I challenge you guys to go look up Self-Control by Laura Branigan, one of the most underrated songs of the 80s. So shout-out to Laura Branigan, not for this song in this movie, but Self-Control. Oh, and if you want to see an 80s... (laughs) You want to see an 80s music video? Go watch the self-control video by Laura Branigan. That is some 80s shit, my friend. Right it's on. It's 80s all day.
1: Well, there's nothing Good wrong with stuff. that. Let's end with this. Yeah. Brendan King wrote in and said, Hello, Knockback Boys. I feel like this movie is an example of what it means to be timeless. Mm-hmm. While watching it recently, I still found myself pleasantly surprised by the visuals and how well they have held up almost 40 years later. The comedy and writing also holds up really well, in my opinion, as well. Well, you just had to allow myself to introduce myself moment. <laughs> My question for you guys is, do you think this movie is timeless? Does it have the qualities that makes films timeless? I hope that made some sense. Keep up the great work and have a ghost busting good day. I think we know the answer to this because we've kind of extensively talked about how we I, I think it's fair to say we both think this movie is overrated. But do you still nonetheless feel like this is a timeless film? I I feel like clearly they're going to keep this movie in in the the mind of consumers for a, ro- a long period of time. But I do wonder if it's starting to wane in the sense where this new movie is maybe going to set the stage for something that is totally new. You remember you and I had a conversation not too long ago. Are they going to ever remake Star Wars? And my answer was yes. Sure. Eventually, it's not going to seem that crazy to do that. No, I know what you mean. And I wonder if they're going to maybe have something similar here. So I think the movie's timeless in a literal sense because obviously it is a cultural touchstone. But in my opinion, it does not earn the space that it takes in um in the pantheon of eighties movies. Like for instance, anything John Hughes did is better than this movie. Just as one example. Okay. Uh, you know, yeah, like, that's so, good.
2: That's fair. I mean he's so, awesome. and, so, like,
1: and we don't we don't ever hear about sixteen candles like we hear about Ghostbusters. Or, oh true. You know so Very true. I know they're different, but they're both there's only so much oxygen from the eighties. Things go forward and this is one of those things that's just taking so much space up. You know?
2: Yeah, well that's a good I mean that's a really good point. I mean I don't think I think this movie is a lot of fun. I really do. I think it's very special because a lot a large part of it is because it represents all three genres that were especially very popular in- and then and still popular today. I think where I come in with this movie is that I find it very hard to articulate why it's so big, not that it's big. I could kind of understand why it's big. I mean, think about just think about one aspect. Think about the con scene, right? Think about going to a con. And there's no Ghostbusters. Think about the nerd culture radar or the nerd culture periphery and and Ghostbusters is nowhere to be seen. It's a different look for nerd culture. It's that big. So this movie did something right or some things right. I just find it hard to articulate exactly why it's so large. Although I do think it's a lot of fun. And I do love the tech. And I do love the imagery. I love the Ecto-1. I love the proton packs. I love the... You know, I love the Neutrona wand. I love all of that stuff. I love the cast of characters. I love the performances. I love the setting. I love the lore that it sets up. But, yeah, it's hard to put your finger on exactly why it took off like something enormous like Star Trek, What like something enormous like Star Wars, like Doctor Who, like Back to the Future, like all these big nerd culture things, Superman, Batman, all this kind of stuff. I think it's an interesting thing. And I really want to go in and see it and examine and be able to explain exactly why. And I think I fall a little short. I think some of it is just magic in a way. Like it's just like, it's almost like supernatural in a way, ironically, which is really interesting. But I do, I was interested to see if I would even like it. And I did really, really enjoy it. Like I find it a very enjoyable hour and 45 minutes to spend your time. I could see and you know what? Maybe all the things we talked about, like the fact of like, we want to see more of the characters, flesh out the relationships, flesh out the history, why are these guys together, their continued adventures, whatever, explain the tech more, explain the world, that you know, the supernatural world and what the rules are here. Maybe the fact that this movie doesn't put all that on the table 100%, maybe us wanting more is why, is part of the reason why it got so big. You know, maybe, and maybe that was a clever strategy. And maybe it was just because, you know, where they left the tech and the explaining on the cutting room floor, it was because they were concentrating on the comedy. Who knows? You know, maybe that it was kind of bipolar in three different directions horror, sci fi, and comedy. Maybe that's why it touched on a little bit of all things. And we want more of each one of those things, you know. So, you know, it's it was it's a really interesting conversation. I've been wanting to do this since day one of knockback. It was especially selfish for me because it was something that I really felt like I had only seen once and couldn't explain and I wanted to be part of the conversation. Like I wanna get it. Like let me let me understand this, you know. And I do. I do I do I do understand it to a certain degree, but at the same time it is confounding that, you know, it got so enormous based on, you know, and think about it, before you know, we had this. We had maybe a Commodore sixty four game and an Atari twenty six hundred game, and that was it. You know, before the other movie franchises, before the other games, before the spin off fiction and all that kind of stuff, it was just this film, and maybe one of the single most powerful movies that come to come out of the eighties, as far as that goes, as far as like spawning uh, this never ending, you know, life, this immortality, really. You know, so I, th- I think it was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to um, seeing what you guys think, and especially if you guys fans out there, seeing if we
1: if we did it justice. Well, Dig, that's our conversation about 1984's Ghostbusters. It's available in many different places. I rented it on Amazon Prime, but you can find it, I think, on um, maybe Apple Plus and or Apple TV or whatever the fuck they call it and other places, too. Dig, as we always do, we end each episode of Knockback with... A dad joke so i throw it over to you
2: oh thank you my friend i i just lost my dad joke and i forgot to write it down am i gonna have to read another one hold on give me one second i'm gonna find it hold on be oh here it is Ah. mountains aren't just funny they're hill areas Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) that's a good one aren't you glad i went and searched for that one
1: Thank you. I'm glad we took a few moments.
2: <laughs> Kyle.
1: Yeah. We came. We saw. We kicked its ass. Yeah, we did. We'll get to Ghostbusters 2 at some point, I'm sure.
2: Mm.
1: As well. We'll have to see that. I have no touchstone with that movie at all.
2: I meant to watch the trailer for it cuz I totally forgot. So I have no, I have no recollection of that movie. It's going to be a That's going to be a fresh conversation cuz I have no remembrance. It whatsoever. is going to be fresh. <laughs>
1: Alright, my friend. It's good to see you and it's good to see all of you out there. Thank you so much for your love, kindness and support of all things Last Stand and Knockback. Remember, of course, you can listen to Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, Defining Duke and Xbox podcast as well. All supported on Patreon at the Biggest Nerd Culture Patreon in history, patreoncom media. Thank you so much for your love, kindness and support over there as well. Merch, laststandmedia.shop. Follow us on social media, follow us on YouTube. Call your mother, she probably misses you. Uh, we'll talk to you later. Goodbye. Call our mother. Call our mother, she misses us. <laughs> <laughs> Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC, and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, FMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel Diamore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Tom Quinn, Sorta Serious Gaming, Unofficial Controller Podcast, Colin Farley, Zia Parix, Henry Groth, Joshua, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Katz, Jordan Mittman, J.A. Zhu, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Graham Plays, Christian R., Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graf, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Nick R., Josh Hallen-Rui, Tyler Watkins, Troy Willis True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Halsey, Bobby Nauman, Nuke Dukum, Jim Bob, 56, William Holbert, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, A. Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, h Jordan Peterson's Fat Hog, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Galja, Of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadeth, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Antti Chris, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac. Ali Fritz, Zach Allam, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, DB Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill. Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algaret, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Joey Andrzek, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell Dennis Usel Eric Finkenbeiner Lou and Ray Loper Jonathan Cortez Dylan Burns Jason Lusky Malachi Wall John Schultz David Chestnut Anton Kay Brian W. Rath Alan Tremblay Tyler Bellow Ryan T. Mandel Tony Zuniga Sean Battershall Robbie Hensley Alex Cabrera Lennon Brixie James Kinslow III Will Caldwell Hugo's Desk Peter Reynolds Anthony Vasquez Adam Kiniston William O'Carroll Jesper Jansen Max Cannon Phil Crone Throw 7 Adam Nix Josh McKinney Michael Gates Alex Gates Ryan Robertson Sean Chandler Petro Rose Lockmore Gio Corsi Joey Gondal Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Carson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.